I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah of Newton, Massachusetts, and this is TBA Now, a podcast featuring issues and concerns that affect our temple community and the people who make it an interesting, dynamic place to be. Everyone has stories to tell. This is the place to hear them. Foodies who live in Newton know the name of Dave Punch, executive chef, restaurateur, and the owner of four fabulous restaurants, all of them in city limits. Sycamore, which is the mothership, Little Big Diner, Buttonwood, and the newest creation, Ginny's. What's it like to be the one bouncing between four restaurants? How did the pandemic change the way the restaurants work? And how does my order of steak bevet, rare, go from my server to the kitchen and then to my table? Give a listen to Dave Punch, a talented chef and a true mensch. So about uh, nine years ago, a new restaurant was opening uh, in Newton. And as I recall, there wasn't a whole lot going on in a new kind of way uh, in general with, with restaurants, always strong with Asian style restaurants, but other cuisine, I don't know. It just wasn't clicking, wasn't happening. And then there was this place that opened up and it was kind of small, and when I walked in, the dude at the bar named Scott was this wonderfully friendly, profane guy, and he welcomed me in, and that moment when Scott said, come on in, uh, that was the beginning of my continual and completely unabated love for Sycamore Restaurant, which is it's phenomenal. It's not just me saying this. I know I'm a foodie and I'm telling you that it's been uh, my favorite place to go. In the old days for a cuisine like that, you had to drive in downtown Boston. You know, it just it wasn't available. And Sycamore changed a whole lot. It was a revolution in the city of Newton. And I was always really amazed at the guy in the kitchen along with a remarkably talented staff that was making it all happen. And I got to meet Dave Punch because he would come out of the kitchen sometimes and just schmooze with his guests. When TBA Now began our podcast, I knew right away I wanted to interview Dave Punch. Now, to get this guy to sit still for more than uh, 10 minutes, I feel already uh, very blessed to have him uh, in slow-mo, what we would consider rushing around for him is slow-mo, believe me. Uh, but we have him here uh, as our guest. And Dave Punch, welcome to TBA oh. Now. Thank you, Rabbi Keith. That's great. Uh, and it's already been four minutes and 33 seconds. So, you know, this is <laughs> – we're – we're going to go in extra slow mode today. I'm, I'm, I got nowhere to go, and we've got all the time in the world. So well, I'm excited to be here. I'm so glad. And yeah, you know, we're just going to keep the clock running because I have thousands of questions for you, thousands. <laughs> and also, I want to say, Dave, you know, uh, one of the uh, things about, to, about our uh, podcast is that uh, the overarching purpose has been for me to uh, have conversations with members of the temple. And it's true that technically you are not a member of Temple Beth of Oda, but I was figuring that probably over half the congregation has eaten uh, at your uh, restaurant, one of your four restaurants. So I'm feeling at this point, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're grandfathered in because An it's honorary food. member. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that sounds good. I haven't been a member of a congregation in a very long time, you know, uh, it's been a while, but I did go to Avoda camp. So, oh, you were an Avoda kid? I, uh, a couple of years. I think I did, it may have even been one. It was either one or two years. It was a very long time ago. So, and my did, memory is starting to slow down a little bit. Uh, did, did you have a bar mitzvah? 
I did have a bar mitzvah. Yeah, I was bar mitzvahed. I guess the same time everyone else was when I was 13 years old. Yeah, <laughs> Longfellow Tennis Club in Natick, Massachusetts. The the site of many a famous I uh, think bar mitzvah. So. I think so. That's for sure. And I went to BJEP growing up. So, got it. So, Dave, t- tell us something about your uh, your origin story. Where are you from? Well. You know, I was born at Beth Israel in Boston, Massachusetts on Brookline Ave. One of Everyone knows it, I'm sure. And then I grew up in Natick, Natick, Mass. And I was there until 1997 when I moved to Vermont by myself to become a world famous skier. And that didn't work out too well, but I started cooking up there. And that was, um, you know, that was the first cooking job I ever had to, I guess you would say, pay the rent. And the rest is kind of history. What led you to believe that uh, you had the shot at uh, it, it fame uh, on yeah. skis? No, I, I, I never. I knew I never did. Um, I just, <laughs> I, I loved skiing, and I was just a bit of a ski bum. And I did a season at Stowe, and you know, I just, I, skiing was my passion back then, and I love the outdoors. And my best friend had gotten accepted to UVM, and he had moved up there. And his parents actually were nice enough to purchase a house on North Willard Street for him to live in. And I lived in the basement. Uh, I said, hey, man, I'm coming up. We're still besties. So I'm coming up. And I lived in the basement of this quasi almost frat house, I guess you'd call it. Seven guys living upstairs. It all went to UVM. And I worked at a burrito shop and skied by day. And it was a great time. It was an awesome time up there. That is quite the existence you're describing. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Had a little dog, and I used to just ski all day and then make tacos and burritos at night. And that was that was the kind of the life, and that was a fun that was a fun time in my life, actually. But when you, you know. grew up, as you were growing up, was uh, did you cook? Uh, were you taken into the kitchen? Was that a familiar you know, territory for you? Not not as much. You know, my mom certainly cooked. My grandparents all cooked. Um, you know, my mom is from Chestnut Hill. She grew up on Dean Road. I'm off at Chestnut Hill Ave. My grandparents, when I was growing up, had a place over on Sharp Road, over um, by Country Club Road. And Mm -hmm. I spent weekend after weekend there. They basically, geez, they raised me. They were all good cooks, but I remember it wasn't as romantic as some other people's kind of, I guess you would call it an origin story, where they kind of grew up, you know, tugging on Nona's you know, apron strings in the kitchen while she was making the meatballs (laughs) and the Sunday sauce. I, I... it was just more utilitarian. And my father being an Irish Catholic, we, we used to eat fish on Fridays and we, you know, I remember it vividly. It was always baked scrod, probably some Monterey Jack cheese and Ritz crumbs, extra buttery and the lemon on the side. And she'd get the scrod at Roach Brothers. And, you know, it was, that was kind of my, my fish and grew up eating, you know, brisket. And, but it, it, my mom, you know, maybe about 10 years ago or so created her own little cookbook of all of the the kind of dishes of our youth. And she gave one to myself, my sister and my brother. You know, it's, it's just so funny going back and looking at it all. Like the, I grew up eating sweet and sour meatballs with Welch's grape. And, oh, yeah. you know, and I, I don't know, it's, it's, it was really food of the eighties. And I don't mean that in any sort of mean way. Uh, my mom certainly tried her hardest and she's a good cook, but it certainly wasn't, you know, I, I didn't grow up eating duck a l'orange. That's for sure. So, okay. So the, the, your entree to cooking uh, began in Vermont then uh, making uh, burritos and tacos. And when you started doing it, it was just a gig, right? Just a job. Mm -hmm, When did mm -hmm. it become something more than just a way to keep yourself in the basement? It didn't just start there because through high school, I started working really, really young. I started working um, when I was probably about 13 years old and I grew up in West Natick and there was the West Natick train station. And my first job ever actually was a local sub shop called the Village Depot. And I used to go in there and I met the guys who worked there because I'd walk up the tracks to the, to the, to the sub shop. Mm-hmm. And they hired me actually, and they gave me five dollars to go and put menus on all of the cars that were in the West Natick train station underneath the windshield wiper. And what then a great would, gig for a yeah, kid! I know. And then I'd sweep the kitchen, and I'd probably just buy a couple bags of chips with the money, and you know, a bunch of candy bars because they used to be like fifty cents. Oh, and then I worked at a place called the Pizza Peddler in high school, and then I worked at a retirement home in Wellesley, cooking and doing the dishes. And my mom used to drive myself and my my neighbor Mike there and pick us up at night. So I've always kind of been you know, linked to restaurants, whether I liked it or not in high school, it was just kind of there. And, and 
you know, I also worked at a garage through high school um, and I was hired and fired about six or seven times. But the owner of the garage was my best friend's dad and she kept getting me my job back and they paid me $10 cash under the table back in the early 90s. That was I was like a king. You know, I bought all the pizza for all my friends. I just I've always been a worker bee. I've always felt like I've been kind of attached to kitchens. And that's why I think I wound up in one when I, I moved out and I started to have to pay the rent. But to kind of loop back, I I guess it all really began when I moved into Boston. So I moved from Vermont. I moved back home while me and my friends who had just all recently graduated from UMass Amherst had decided, hey, let's all move into Boston together. Let's do the thing. We were 20 years old. And I, I said, okay. So I moved home and we, we got an apartment in Davis Square. And like everybody else, I needed a job. And I certainly wasn't entering the professional workforce because I didn't go to college. I made a resume <laughs> and all my resume was handyman, oil changer, and I can make burritos. Um, <laughs> so I ended up going around town and just dropping my resume at just about every restaurant and bar in town. And I was in the Phoenix Landing, which is this really not very classy joint in Central Square. And the bartender who was working, um, Shane Smith, I sat down and I had a burger. He said, and I was the only person in the bar. He said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm out looking for a job. He said, can you work on Saturday night? Have you ever checked IDs before? I said, yeah, 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 of course. And I wound up um, going in to the Phoenix Landing on Saturday night to check IDs at the door. And uh, that was my first Boston restaurant job. Ended up helping out in the kitchen, bar backing, all that stuff for almost a year while I was in culinary school. What a great, what a great training ground. Well, Shane has since become my business partner. So I own half of all these restaurants and I have a, a, a little quiet guy in the back, Irish gentleman, Shane Smith from County Monaghan. We met at the Phoenix Landing that day and uh, 21 years later, we own uh, four restaurants together. Amazing story. You mentioned that you went to culinary school. I did a certificate program at Boston University. When I had started to kind of think, oh man, maybe this is for me. My mom was at a wedding and she was actually sitting next to the admissions officer from the Metropolitan College at BU, which is their continuing education school. She, this woman had been running the admissions for the culinary program, not the Shah School of Hospitality Administration, but the Metropolitan kind of continuing ed program. Mm -hmm. which was started by Jacques Pepin and uh, Julia Child. I think we've heard of them. Yeah, they're all right. She said, oh, this woman I was sitting next to, she said she can kind of maybe get your application in the front of the line. I think my mom just wanted what every mom wants, which is, you know, for her son to succeed and do something with his life. And I said, I don't need to go to college for this. And she kind of convinced me and I got accepted to the program. I don't know how hard it was really to get accepted. I think if you were willing to give them the money, they were willing to teach you how to cook. <laughs> and I spent the next uh, four months learning how to cook. It was all pretty quick. It was just, it, it all happened very quickly. I started to cook there and started to really see that it was, I, I just remember it was all so romantic. It was all so different. I remember the smell of Boston back then and the kitchens and how cool it was. Cause I was so clueless, really opened up my eyes to the fact that it could be something more. When you said you were clueless, clueless to what? Clueless to how it all really worked and clueless that there are levels to this thing. I have respect for everyone and, and I'll eat a hot dog out of a gas station. I'm like the least snobby guy. If I'm, it's the middle of summer. Like I love to pull a Bud Heavy out of a cooler. Like I'm not, it's not all Trillium, you know, hazy IPAs. And you know, as I was saying earlier, Duck à l'Orange, but there are levels to the kind of cooking galaxy and restaurant galaxy. And, and I had been putting basically unripe tomatoes through a food processor for a year straight and taking bags of, you know, potato chips and tossing them with Cajun spice. You know what I mean? I didn't really know too much more and I didn't really grow up eating too fancy. I mean, a fancy night out for us was Jimmy's Harborside or Ken's Steakhouse, or maybe Houlihan's. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. um, Legal's was, I mean, that was the creme de la creme. I mean, come on. Sure. And so I didn't really grow up eating too fancy. So I, I didn't really know. And I remember I've, I've been with my wife now. This will be 20, 20 years. You know, we, we met pretty young. I'm 41 years old now. And I remember our first trip away, we, we, we fell in love pretty quickly. And we went away pretty quickly on our first trip. We went to Montreal when I was 21 years old, like right when we met. And I remember being in a restaurant called Piccolo Diablo. <laughs> and she was like, oh, let's order the prosciutto and melon. And I was like, prosciutto and melon. <laughs> what is that's the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life and she was like no it's really good it's classic and I was like okay and uh, we ordered it. And I was like oh my god this is delicious gosh 
you know? And so when I say that there's levels to it, like I had no idea. I just didn't know how, how it was made. I didn't know that people could make their own sausage. Um, you know, I didn't know what duck confit was. I didn't know what a naturally raised grass fed New York strip steak was like. I didn't know. I didn't like blue cheese. I didn't I, like, I was just a little young and, and we all were at some point. And, and I love it. I love, I love hiring young cooks that are just like, as I say, a little clueless. And I love cluing them in and being that guy that, that one of my first chefs was. Well, you've done that, not just with the people you hire, but you've done that with the level of culinary experience uh, in the city of Newton, which is to really raise it up, um, not one notch, but but several. Did you, when, when you decided, and I'm sort of skipping ahead a bit, but when no. you decided uh, along with uh, Sean there to, to open up Sycamore, um, did you already have fully realized the kind of food you were going to serve? Yes, I think so. Certainly morphed organically. You know, I had a really good idea. I wanted to, as I said, when we were opening up Sycamore, I said, I want to open up a restaurant that you could see in Tribeca or the, you know, the West Village or any place. And you could take this restaurant, you could put it anywhere, you could put it out in the South End, really anywhere, and it would be successful. So I wanted to really, I really, really, really wanted to bring an urban experience to Newton, which is a city. And I feel like it hadn't gotten that yet. It hadn't gotten that kind of like, I mean, Lumiere, obviously, they had Le Soir, right. 51 Lincoln. There were certainly some spots, and I'm not diminishing them, but it was like, I just really wanted to open up a cool restaurant that was going to elevate the the game out here, you know, and, and I committed to Newton because half of my guests were coming from Newton. I swear they were starved for it. And so I had a restaurant in Cambridge before, and I've always, like you said earlier, I've always been good about getting out there and meeting my guests. Um, it's always been really important to me. And I think it, I think it's restaurants 101 to be appreciative of your guests and meet them and be involved with them. And, but when I had doesn't that restaurant. Doesn't it surprise you when, doesn't it surprise you if you have the chance to go to a restaurant where that's not the understanding of the house? They never come out and it always baffles me. It really does. I, I just think it's, for me, it's, it's restaurants 101. I'm like, get out there, be friendly, meet people, be yourself, be honest, be part of the scene. It's, it's served me pretty well. And it's, uh, you know, I always say that restaurants are like a tripod. You've got the food, the ambiance and the service. Mm. And I go to a place and if any one of those things is, not working, the table's going to tip and the glass will slide off that three-legged table. Yeah. And I go to a restaurant in my, my hometown. It's, it's fine. It's good. Um, but it's not like a 10, you know, maybe it's like a six, but it's, they, they, they always get it and the kids like it, but the people there are so darn friendly and it just keeps me coming back. And it's those fundamentals. I'm like, listen, I might go to a restaurant where the food's not the best, but if they're very, very friendly all the time, then it's going to keep me coming back. And so I've kind of tried to adopt that and I've tried to kind of elevate that idea and say, hey, listen, let's make sure the food is good. Let's make sure the service is really friendly and let's make sure the place is sharp looking. In, in order to do that, I mean, it sounds really simple, but you're describing a philosophy that you have to impart to your staff. That must not always be so easy. No, no, it's not. And, you know, all of the the managers and company Lizzie at Sycamore and Kirsten and Matt and, you know, now Lydia, everybody, well, Lydia owns the, the joint over there with us, but it's, it's been a challenge um, over the years, but, you know, once everyone starts to understand this is what we do, you know, this is who I am, then everyone's a lot better off. And we, we, we really take our time with hiring. We think, and, and I'm very much like I, the bussers are just as important as the general manager. In a way, you know what I mean? The, the, sure. the dishwasher is just as important as the bartender, so on and so forth. We have a motto that everybody's job is everybody's job. Mm. And, you know, Lizzie at three o'clock, you'll see her out back in the dish pit running some racks. And you know what? You're, you're really not going to see that very often in restaurants. You're really not. And, you know, you'll see if we're, if we're really busy and the servers are tied up at tables um, talking to guests, you'll see one of the cooks just grab a dish. I'll be like, yo, go take that to table 13, get out there. And they're like, no, 
go, go, just get out there. It's okay, man. And, you know, we use the front door here. That's, it's a saying of mine. We use the front door and, and most restaurants, the service staff the, the, and the cooks and dishwashers, they all come in through the back door. And it's always kind of bothered me. You know, I think that if we treat people with respect and they'll treat the restaurant with respect and they'll treat the guests with respect and they'll treat the ownership with respect. And, you know, it's a two way street for me. And, and, and I think that people have like the employees have all really gotten behind that and um, it's worked out really well for us. Well, I, I can say is, is to have the honor of uh, having been a guest at all four of your places that, that is the feeling that one gets in the dining room from, uh, from that vantage point, which is that it flows because there, there's not a moment that one feels unattended. And again, we've all been to restaurants where sometimes it feels like, you know, <laughs> you got the menu and then you're on a desert island, you know, and you can tell that anybody uh, that is not designated as the waiter for section two uh, yeah. is, is staying away. So that, that notion that, um, which I think is part of the ambiance you're describing is the diner feels cared for and cared about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, 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 it's strange to me um, why sometimes restaurateurs, they say, Oh, why isn't it working? And I just want to shake them and be like, be nice, be friendly, have a yes mentality. Like, why isn't it working? It's cause you're, you, you're not being nice. You're not being as friendly as you should be. And like appreciative, you know, I feel like sometimes restaurants have slipped into this kind of, I guess, mentality that, we're doing the guest a favor and it's not that way. It's, it's, we're, we're all, you know, in this thing symbiotically, you know, we're all, we're doing you a favor being open. You're doing us a favor coming in. We're doing people favors, employing them, you know, they're doing favors working for us. It's just like, it's all just kind of give and take uh, in restaurants. You know, it's not just kind of like someone's concept and someone's dream. And I open this, place and this is what I'm going to do. And it's like, if that's what you want to do, then that's fine. But don't be surprised if, you know, there's a really well-known chef out there and don't ask me his name because I'm not going to tell you. Um, and he came into my restaurant once and he was standing at the pass and Scott knows this story. I'm sure Scott, he laughs about it all the time. We were joking about it the other night. We put candles in people's desserts here because, you know, if it's a birthday, you want a candle. That's cool. And that's great. I love that. I want a candle on my dessert on my birthday. The chef was standing there at the pass with me, talking to me and a dessert came up and we put a candle in it. And he said, you're going to let them put a candle into your dessert. And I went, what? And Scott was standing there and he looks at the guy, he goes, scram. He goes, get out of here. And I was like, I was like, yeah, we are. It's like, that's, they want, it's their birthday. He's like, never in my restaurant. I said, well, and, you know, I'm not going to lie to you that that restaurant went out of business um, less than in maybe a year or two later. Um, yeah. And I, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily um, the reason why. I, I don't know why. But like, I don't know. Just be friendly. Right. I Just be friendly. Right. You're, uh, I mean, I, I, I think that line between. I mean, there certainly is in our culture now a true worship of food um, and um, it manifests in a variety of ways. And it, it seemed to me that one of them is that notion that a chef would say, you know, do not mar the uh, surface of my uh, ghetto with uh, some sort of candle. This is not a, this is not Chuck E. Cheese for God's sake. But um, I think the, the, one of the things I think that you've tried to do, and again, from a dining perspective is to take, you know, a cuisine really, uh, the very highest level of uh, what a chef is capable of doing and what a kitchen is capable of producing, but doing it without pretension. And I think that makes a huge difference. It makes people more willing to want to try something. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I'd be lying if I didn't say some of the stuff we did here was pretentious. It was funny. I was having a discussion with someone the other night and about, I guess you would quote, quote unquote snobbery. And I'm like, well, I think I, I try not to be, and I don't want to be, I really don't. I want everyone to be able to come in for dinner. Um, and, and, you know, maybe I'll be shooting myself in the foot saying this a lot, but are we a little snobby? Probably. I don't know. Like, like well, I said, the fun. yeah, but it's a bit of the fun. And, and beforehand, when I was a kid, like I didn't know much about this and it took until I was in a restaurant staging for the first time and looking at all the dishes and the chef said, Hey, what do you want? I said, I want that weird sauerkraut dish. 
Um, and it was a chacrut garni. It was an Alsatian dish. Um, and I sat in the dish pit on a milk crate and I ate it. And I was like, my mind was melted. And I was like, <laughs> I was like what is this madness? And, um, but like what we do, my friends still sometimes come in. They're like, so snobby, dude. And I'm like, yeah, maybe a little bit. I'm like, but that's why you're here and you're having fun, right? Because we've overanalyzed the wine list and we've overanalyzed our purveyors and We've thought of all the things that hopefully, you know, make your night great. You know, does that come with a bit of snobbery? And, you know, sure, maybe, you know, but I think that it adds to the guest's experience, you know? It does. And I, I have to say that I always find it great fun uh, looking at a menu to have to like Google stuff. You know, yeah. I want to order that, but what the heck is that? But again, it's, it's, yeah. uh, and we, we grapple with that, honestly. Like we look at menus and like Lizzie, for instance, at, you know, Sycamore will say, do we really want to use that word? Like, you know what I mean? And yeah. because all that's going to do is it, people are going to say, what's that? And and that's okay, you know, to a, to a point. Um, but if your whole menu is speckled with those and it's all foreign kind of like people don't understand what you're trying to do or, or you, you start to kind of get to this point where you're like, I don't know, a bit elitist at that point, you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, Dave, so chefs are portrayed uh, often in the movies as being artistes, uh, vain, and really hard to deal with, uh, and also very heavy partiers. Um, and there have been a variety, you know, Anthony Bourdain wrote about it. And I mean, there's testimonies of various chefs at various places during I guess the 80s was, uh, and 90s was a time of particular supposed decadence. I'm wondering, is that reputation well-deserved? Unfortunately, yes. I think it's changing a little bit for sure. But it, but it, it yeah, it really is deserved. We don't run our restaurant that way. Um, but certainly, you know, chefs can be hot-headed and certainly vain. There definitely needs to be a little bit of ego that's involved with this thing. You are putting yourself out there. I think it does attract a certain risk taker with someone who's going to open their own business and, and spend a lot of money doing it. And it's it's scary. It's changing. It really is. It's becoming more of a profession rather than kind of that party lifestyle, banana boats living kind of, you know, New York, Anthony Bourdain and don't get me wrong, when I read that book, like mm. however long ago it was, 20 years ago or so, like my mind was blown. I loved it. And I was like, this is what I want. You know what I mean? This is what <laughs> sure. I want. I want to work at the Rainbow Room and I want to drink martinis, you know, until four in the morning, you know, in a basement bar. And like, and I did. And I, and I, I lived that life. I really did. And obviously everyone grows up. I've got two kids now and such. And it's more of just kind of like a, you know, I'll certainly have a drink after work. Um, but, you know, I'm not cranking down martinis all night long. That's for sure anymore. But it, it, like you said, the, the whole artiste thing, a lot of guys do think that way. I don't. Um, I think it's more of a craft. And I've always kind of thought it was more of a craft than an, an art form. And I think that you can certainly take anything in the world to an artistic place, you know, like a paper maker. I'm just looking around my office and saying, okay, someone who like, you know, makes paper by hand and presses mm -hmm. it. Sure. That's, that's very different than me buying a ream of paper at Staples, you know, um, or, you know, someone who hand carves a desk and, and is that art or is that craft or is it arts and crafts? As funny as that sounds. Um, and it's, you know, I have a piece of plywood on two Metro shelves that we have everything on. That's, that's certainly just, that's a nothing, but it's like, I would work at home a little bit. I've, I've recently kind of picked that up and it's been, I'm trying to really get into that. And, um, there's certain people who carve things and it's incredible and it's beautiful, yeah. but it's like, yeah. is, is that like, I don't know what that is anymore. I just like, I don't know what cooking is. And is it art or is it craft? And for me, it's a, it's a skill that you hone. Mm -hmm. um, the same way that like a good Mason can build a wall, you learn how to work a grill, you know, and, and, and you, it's about consistency. It's not about like an art probably is about imperfections and it's about kind of like, you know, randomness and, and uh, not all of it, obviously I, I know I'm overgeneralizing, but it's like it, with cooking, it's about how consistent can I make it? I want everything to be the same darn way every single time. And mm -hmm. if that is the case, then you're winning. And that's hard to do. Consistency is hard. 
it's really, really hard. And, and that's what kind of, you know, it becomes a bit more kind of crafty to me. Well, it, there's so much challenge in being able to accomplish that. And um, I'm surprised as, as you were talking about picking up um, this new uh, skill of woodworking. And I'm thinking Dave Punch owns f four restaurants in Newton. And that would seem to me to be an extraordinary amount of work bopping from one spot to the other. How do you, how are you managing this now, Dave? Um, poorly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> poorly. Honestly, yeah, pretty poorly. If I'm being completely honest, um, you know, I'm, I've always been a bit of a workaholic and I, you know, every year I've promised my wife, oh, a little less, a little less, a little less. And, and, you know, geez, she's just a saint, um, you know, and it's, it's, like I said earlier to you before we started uh, recording, like sometimes I pinch myself and I'm like, it's like that talking head song. Like, this is not my life. Um, I kind of just, I, I wanted, when I was a cook, I wanted to be the sous chef. When I was a sous chef, I wanted to be the chef. When I was the chef, I wanted to be an owner. And when I owned one restaurant, I wanted to be a restaurateur. And it's a little bit of a case of like, be careful what you wish for. And I love it. I do. But it's, it's hard. You know, Dave, this year has been, extraordinarily uh, different, obviously, that is owning restaurants in the pandemic. Like what a, it's a challenge no matter what restaurant life is tough and competitive and unpredictable. And then just taking that as the, you know, the, the water in the aquarium, then we add the pandemic. So um, if you would, Dave, would you, um, Give us some sense of where your head was at uh, the day before everything closed down. And then kind of what was your plan? Because I know there are restaurants in Newton, not to mention all over, that have had to close. They're gone, and um, which is just heartbreaking for every single person that owned those restaurants, that worked, that were doing the dishes, you know, doing the cooking, sweeping the floor for everyone involved. It's really just a terrible loss. You've managed to, God willing, get through to the other side, not only in one piece, but uh, your fourth and most recent restaurant, Ginny's, just opened uh, like officially last week. So first, kind of what was your Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stages of grief and then getting to the other side. And how the hell did you open a restaurant during COVID? Well, all the stages of grief are still happening <laughs> almost daily, um, hourly. It's uh, It's been strange for sure. You know, I remember last March was the first time I, I got to go down to Charleston Food and Wine Festival. My friend had invited me down and uh, I did some events down there. And it was like, I remember my wife saying, and that was like, maybe the first week of March. And I remember my wife saying, Hey Dave, there's this thing going on. Like, just make sure you wipe your, your, your seat on the airplane with like some sandy wipes or something. I, I think there's this thing called coronavirus. I was like, what? Whatever. And um, that was kind of the last thing I remember. And now like kind of a blur later, we're, we're a year into it. But I went down there and it was like, still where it wasn't happening yet. People were kind of, there were mumblings about it. And I remember getting back and it was about two weeks before March. What was it? March 14th that we, that Baker called it. I don't really remember anymore. It's kind of a little blurry, but I remember yeah. coming back and my business partner, Shane was like, Hey, we might need to socially distance like back in the Spanish flu. And I was like, stop talking. I was like, this is restaurants. Like, are you kidding me? No one will ever come to a restaurant. Like we, this is what we do. Like, we all have to calm down. We're going to be fine. And I had, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I had no idea what was in store, obviously. And then I remember by, that was on a, maybe on a Monday. And I remember by Friday, like there was no sanitizer left in Boston, you know, right, and I had right. guys selling me gallons of sanitizer for a hundred dollars off the back of a truck. And I was scrambling to Target to try and find pumps for all the restaurant. And I was like, what is happening? And we were like, okay, do we need to hang something on the door? It, it just all happened so quickly. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I, I feel like, it just went from zero to a hundred and over two weeks, 
you know, the night that they called it, we were empty. We had like two guests at Buttonwood and I was, I was frantically all week. I was just driving in a triangle between the three restaurants, trying to just be cheerleader and be like, guys, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. And then no one was coming to any of the restaurants. And I was like, wow, this is weird. Maybe we're not going to be okay. And mm-hmm. thankfully, like we were positioned pretty well. We'd, we've done well over the years and I, I live a pretty humble life. So like we, we, you know, I typically, as I say, I let it ride. So I typically keep decent bank balances and, and I don't, I don't really take it. I just leave it in the restaurants, thankfully. Um, and um, we were positioned pretty well and I was really scared, but at the same time, I knew that human beings and as a population, we weren't gonna, this wasn't going to be the end of restaurants. I was certainly scared. And then on that Sunday night, everyone was kind of freaking out. They called it. And I remember having an all manager meeting. It was about 15 of us sitting in the dining room over at Buttonwood on that Monday. And we had devised this huge plan to never close and to start takeout right away because I thought it was my kind of social obligation uh, to keep people going and keep people employed. And because this was before that extra, you know, supplemental income on unemployment and before right. all the CARES Acts and before all that, before it all, before PPPs, before anything. And I was like, how are we going to, we can't just, I can't lay off Lenny. You know what I mean? My boss at Sycamore has been with me for a decade. Like she was working for me at 10 tables. Jeez, I can't do it. And Shane and I were kind of like, well, we'll, we kind of had a side conversation. Well, we'll, we'll make sure that everyone's okay. Like we're going to, if anyone really runs into some trouble, um, especially the Latino community, we'll, we'll try to help them as best we can financially. And then we were like, okay, we're going to keep everybody going and we'll put everybody on two days. And we had this giant matrix and I was freaking out. My wife just really wanted me to close the restaurants. And I was like, no, 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 we have to keep going for everybody. Everyone needs to to work, you know? Um, and then we were all sitting there in the room and everyone was on the verge of tears, I swear. And then all of a sudden the, the, the chef from Little Big Diner had been in Aruba and it was like, he had had this trip planned forever and he was gone the week. It was all kind of coming to a head and he came back into you know, the States and he landed in Logan and we were all in this meeting and he drove directly over and he was like, what are you guys thinking? And he had been out of it. You know what I mean? He didn't know what was going on. He didn't really know what was going on. He did like from, you know, a little bit of screen time here or there, but not, not really. And he hadn't been living it. And he was like, are you out of your mind? There's a pandemic. And we were all like, whoa. And Josh was like, I'm not working. And he was the chef. And I was like, wait, what? He's like, I don't want to do it. And he was the only person that said he didn't want to do it. And I brought everybody down into the office individually, every manager in the company. I brought them all down and I was on the verge of tears the whole darn time. You want to do it? And they were like, I want to do it. If you want to do it, chef, we're here for you. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then I, I brought Lydia down last. Um, and I was like, Lydia, what should, heck, what should, we, what should we do? And she was like, Dave, do what you want to do, man. And everyone's just saying they want to do it because they, you know, they feel bad for you or whatever. And I was like, ah, and they were like, she was just like, you paid it forward so hard. Like, just do what you want to do. I went upstairs and I was like, guys, uh, if one person right now says that we should just close our restaurants, we'll close. And I don't know who said it. And and like the air just came back in the room and we're all like, I was like, we're done. And I called up my business partner who was dealing with a couple of other restaurants. I said, Hey, listen, man. I was like, I'm calling it. We're closing the restaurants. He was like, your call. He's like, that's fine. I support it. And, um, we all made a plan, um, over the next three days to give away all the food to the staff, um, and, and winterize all the restaurants and shut them down. Cause we had no idea how long we were hopeful that it was going to be a few weeks. Obviously it ended up being longer and it was so emotional. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. So we all as teams went to each restaurant for a day or two. So like, you know, every manager and company and a couple cooks who came in and chipped in and helped out. Um, we came in, we gave away all the food. We had a huge pickup, um, at Sycamore. We brought all the food over and everybody just filled up boxes and boxes. You'd be, I mean, we had so much food. I can't even explain it. And then we kind of just called it and we all went home and it was like, I remember rushing home and stopping at Whole Foods and dead on my way home as like the last thing I was going to do. And this was at the peak, like everyone was freaking out. There were no cars on the road. It was like end of days. Yeah. yeah. I just remember going up, there was no food left. And we, this is when, I mean, I was like, people are walking up the the aisle and like you would cross the aisle and mm-hmm, be looking at mm-hmm. each other like the other person was a zombie or something like that. I was like, oh my gosh. And I just was going to the canned goods and I just was like sweeping the shelves into like a cart being like, oh my gosh, there's nothing left. I'm going to have to eat tuna for the next year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, tuna melt village over here. But so, and then I got home 
And I like, I had lost like 10 pounds that week. I hadn't eaten in like a week. And my wife was like, you need to have some tea and you need to relax. And I like, couldn't even talk. Mm. It was, I was shell shocked. And I was like, the restaurants are all closed. And I was like, this is the strangest feeling. I woke up the next day and like the amount of um, relaxation, it was really strange, Keith, because honestly, I, uh, it was a very relaxing time in a very strange, sick way because I've never had much time off. And I was like, I don't have anything to worry about today other than the global pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) But I was like, I, I was just like, everyone's safe. We're all at home. Everyone's safe. Everyone's got food. I'm going to spend some time with the kids. And I tried to really tune out and, um, you know, it was, it was pretty wild, but I remember the globe calling me and asking me for an interview. And I was like, I don't think I can talk on the record. And it was Dever first and Kara Baskin and myself on a conference call. And I was just like crying. I was like, I can't do it. They were like, just yeah. tell us something. And I was like, I can't, I was like, I just had to lay off 90 people. You don't understand. And mm-hmm. we kept the, you know, it was, I was like, I can't imagine like, cause it was, it was so hairy, dude. It was so hairy. When did you go from shutters all drawn to starting to reopen? Honestly, I don't remember. I think at Sycamore, we did it in stages and at Sycamore, we were like, we got to get going. Lydia and I never really stopped. Now we didn't really talk about it too much, but we, we cooked for the staff. We cooked for the Latino staff um, who couldn't get any unemployment. So Lydia and I were coming in from basically the jump on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And we were making um, dinners for about, you know, 60 to 100 people, um, families out in East Boston, Revere, Dorchester. Wow. Chelsea. Then we would deliver them through town by ourselves. And we'd, we'd go in in the morning and we were just running through all the food that we had left over from people not grabbing it at first. And then we were, and I was like, this is awesome. This is like the best cooking I've ever done. This is the mm-hmm. most fun I've ever had. And the two of us would just go in, in the morning and we'd unlock. And my wife was super nervous with me leaving the house because it was sure. just nobody out. And we'd, we'd make the food. And then we started having some volunteers who would come down to Sycamore, a couple of like the sous chefs or the chefs say, Hey, I'll come and do deliveries today. And, um, we just kind of cooked for, we had a little spreadsheet and whoever wanted food that day, they would get in touch with Lydia. And we were just making a tremendous amount of food. And we did that for about six weeks, eight weeks Mm -hmm. or something like that. And, um, it was, and then finally my partner's like, dude, how long are we going to, you know, we're going to, and I was like, I know we had to open, you know, at some point just because of rent and everything else, it was sure. pretty scary, you know, times financially started to get a little hairy. You know, we made a plan to open up three nights a week and that was about maybe six to eight weeks in, I think, or something like that. I think about six to eight weeks. And then we opened up on um, Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays with a very limited staff. It was just myself, Lydia, Scott, and Lenny. And um, it was so busy. <laughs> it was so busy. <laughs> Holy mackerel. And people were like, Thank you for giving us ceviche. We've been eating like, you tuna know, fish. Yeah, tuna fish. You know, it's remarkable. It's like people compl- like, it's so funny. We're all, you know, people, um, they needed to cook for themselves. And, um, you know, it was uh, eye opening experience for everyone, I think. And, and the freshness of what we do made me feel, it, I felt so good when we reopened. I felt so happy, like to just be giving people like, and not to say everyone's great cooks, but to be giving people professionally executed food, people were so thankful. And the energy was like, I mean, like you can't believe we like refitted Sycamore into this pickup zone and, you know, laid tables out front. We let one person at a time to pick up their bag. Everything was super planned. I was going down to the pier in the morning to pick up the fish. We weren't really getting too many deliveries because nobody was really delivering. And um, I would go out to New Market Square and pick up the veggies in the morning. And then we started to slowly get more deliveries in. People started to kind of normalize a little bit. It just felt so good to cook. It was the most fun. And I was cooking the grill. Lydia was working the salads. And we brought in one guy to do saute. At first, it was a chef from Buttonwood. And then we brought in a cook. And it was just, it felt so good. It felt so good. Well, as one of the people, excuse me, standing uh, outside waiting my turn to get my bag. And um, I I have to agree. I The notion of uh, having something, you know, I, I like to cook. I consider myself a pretty good cook, but professionally prepared food is where it's at. We use a lot um, more salt than you guys use. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trick. You know, one thing about that, by the way, Dave, is that when you were doing the takeout scene uh, at – Sycamore, um, 
you give people times to pick up the food. It's not kind of just throw it together and leave it under a heater. You have a whole philosophy about the freshness of the food and how you want it to be taken home. Yeah, big time. I'm really proud of uh, our takeout game. And I'm really, really, really proud of Lizzie and uh, Scott and Lydia for kind of figuring these systems out and a million other people too. Um, you know, because what what we wanted to do was, I've never done takeout before. Uh, I, I did takeout when I was younger, obviously, but I, I haven't done takeout at any of my restaurants ever. If people would get upset with you because Little Big yeah. doesn't offer oh, takeout, they're like, yeah. I want to take oh. it out. And then they were upset when we did. And then they're upset. It was like, <laughs> uh, it's been a, it's been challenging there. But the, um, you know, the bumper sticker was that we wanted to make sure that we gave people as hot a food as we could. And we kept joking, we're the hottest game in town. And I like literally meant heat wise, um, because I was like, listen, let's do it like we do it in the restaurant. And we're going to plate your food as you're standing out front. And I wanted, cause listen, we didn't really, we lowered our prices in the beginning um, because I just didn't feel like I could charge the same prices for something that, you know, there was no service included on. I didn't want to charge someone. We're not doing the dishes. We're not giving, we're not bringing it to your table. We're not crumbing your table in between courses. We're not doing any of that stuff. Right. So I said, you know what, let's, let's lower the price a little bit. Let's, you know, let's ease up on people and it's challenging times. We lowered the price a little bit and we simplified the food, but we really, really, really set out to make it hot heat wise, you know, it's, it's been strange, but I've heard from so many guests, like, man, it's, it's when you open it up, it's still warm because so many restaurants, you just, you get it. And I have one, one of my, my best guests says he always shows up half an hour early for his takeout anywhere else, even if they give him a quoted time, because he's like, they just crank it out and then it just sits on a bar someplace or it sits on a shelf someplace. Absolutely. And us, we're, and people will show up and they're like six fifty five for their seven o'clock pickup. We're like, yeah, your food's not ready yet. They're like, what? Like, we have just got to wait five minutes. It'll be up at seven o'clock. And we have it that plan where we can take X amount of orders. We take, we, we were able to take five orders every 15 minutes. Um, unless the wow. orders were big, we'd knock it down to three orders every 15 minutes. And we had a big giant matrix that we had taped to the bar every day with the pickups and who was coming in at that time so that I could pop out and say hi. I knew everyone who was coming in all night long. And then we would set up all their bags in advance. Um, it was all really organized. We had these, each time slot had its own little bucket on the bar. And we would ring and then we would put the receipt in there and we just had this, the bar was set up like, it looked like Wall Street out there. <laughs> you know, it, it really uh, is a testament to to someone far more organized than me because I could barely set up my microphone for this podcast. I mean, I, I'm not like, I'm not that guy. I'm like a, you know, Lydia just made me business cards and it says chief moral support officer. Um, oh, that's terrific. What a great I don't title. Really, I know. I'll take it. I was like, yeah, I love that. And she's chief list list writer. So, I mean, so she, she certainly did a little bit more of this kind of planning than I did. Um, and I was just here to make sure that the pork chops tasted good. And that so I wonder roast, if, roast if was good. not a small part of your continued success through this madness has been this really high level of organization and execution. I'd like to think so. And I, and I think it's been, you know, the people like the, the, the managers and the chefs and everybody's commitment to the guests still. And I feel like a lot of people are just kind of like, we have to just survive. And I was like, no, we have to survive and do well. We have to like, let's keep it going. Let's do what Sycamore does. Let's do what LBD does. Nothing changed really. We're just putting it into a box instead of onto a plate right now. Let's still give it our all. Let's not rush through this. Let's do it like we're going to do a regular service. So, you know, we would have some nights where we, we were ringing almost the same. It was, you know, certainly seen a drop in business. Obviously, at Sycamore, probably about 30 or 40%, which is fine. It's to be expected. But like we had nights on Fridays and Saturdays, we'd do the same amount of food or more, you know, on those nights. That's just amazing. Yeah. it's And when I say in in – you know, it's just a different, it's just a whole different business right now because profitability just goes through the floor because we don't make money on food. We make money on, on alcohol, you know what sure. I mean? In restaurants. I mean, if I want to peel back the curtains a little bit, it's, it's, uh, the food is, you know, at these restaurants anyway, we use such high end ingredients that it's just like the food cost is always high. We always have a high food cost and that's something I'm willing to eat. No pun intended, because I think it's, I think it keeps you busy, you know? So 
I and think it keeps people, people coming that. back. Yeah, I think people appreciate that. So, but but in terms of where you make your money in restaurants, we typically do about sixty five percent food sales, about thirty five percent you know beverage sales at Sycamore, for instance. Little Big Diner is a little different. Invested times are about eighty twenty, mm-hmm. um, but normally about like eighty six fourteen. Um, but for instance, at Sycamore right now, we're probably well, we're we're normalizing a little bit. Um, but when we were really doing it, we were about ninety five percent food, five percent alcohol. And so it's just your, your, all your metrics, just, they all get thrown in the washing machine and just jumbled up. So right. it's, it's just a different business right now. One of the things that's often on the menu in various ways is your uh, Bavette steak. Yeah. I have always, always wondered this. If you could just trace for me, let's say the main course I'm ordering is the Bavette steak. Could you take me through the moment I make the order to the moment it actually comes back fulfilled on a plate right under my nose. Could you tell me how that process works? Yeah, of course. There's the first rule of restaurants is no pocketing orders. So the second that that server gets your order, in some of the larger restaurants, they'll take multiple orders at tables. And that's what's called pocketing your your order. They'll take an order and then they'll go to the next table, take another one. Then they'll go to the next one and they'll take another one or they'll kind of just work around, you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. um, then it kind of comes in the kitchen yeah, as, as a waterfall and it just becomes un, you know, unmanageable. And so our thing here is no pocketing your orders. The second a guest gives you their order, the server will walk over to the POS system and put it in. They'll put in your whole order at a time. They'll put in the drinks. They'll put in just everything, your appetizers. And in between your appetizers and your entrees will be a course line. And then you'll get a footer. You will say VIP, Rabbi Keith. You know, I'll know who it is. And it'll come into the kitchen. We'll immediately start doing your appetizers. The steak will get pulled and it'll start to get tempered. Um, you know, it'll, it'll basically go onto a resting rack up on the station and it'll get seasoned. So this salt can kind of, um, you know, get into the meat and such. And then it'll basically, the second your appetizers go out, we might start up that steak chef. There's always someone in the kitchen that's, that's kind of like orchestrating the, the flow of the kitchen. And so, so someone's looking at every order that comes in. Essentially. Oh yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Big time. We used to work with about five people in the kitchen, one chef in the past, and then we'd have a uh, garde manger, which is, does the salads and the cold stuff. And then we would have a grill guy and basically grill meat. And then we would have a middle guy that just helps plate the food, usually a sous chef. And then we would have a saute that does the pastas and um, pan roasted fish, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so that order would, it, we have three tickets. So that order will get split into three tickets. Um, one for the cooks on the line to see what they have. And then one for the garmage to make the salads or whatnot. And then one for the chef in the past to see. And so basically the salads will go out and then the chef will say, hey, start up that steak. We'll start the steak up. The steak will you know, grill for about seven to 10 minutes, depending on how it's cooked. And then it'll come off to rest. We always try to rest our meat for, you know, at minimum about half the time it cooked for. So, you know, if you cook a steak for 10 minutes, you want it to kind of rest for at least five minutes so it can reabsorb and it doesn't just like, because we, a lot of the time we'll slice our steaks. And so it doesn't just kind of, you know, juice out on the plate. Mm -hmm. Then basically the server, the manager, the bussers, everyone kind of works together to see how fast these people are eating, how slow they're eating, whatnot. We typically try to fire entrees about seven minutes before the table is cleared before you want them anyway. You've got about two or three bites left of your f- first course, we'll fire the entrees. So they'll send through a, a ticket into the kitchen and it'll say fire table 33. Chef will say, hey, start this up and we're going to go on in about seven minutes. If we can, we'd like to group tickets together. You know what I mean? So we'll try to kind of jog one, two minutes, you know, either way, you know, so we can kind of mm-hmm, get a little mm-hmm. bit of a group together. We, we work off of a seven minute fire time is what we tell the servers um, when we're kind of training them. So in about seven minutes, we're hopeful that your food is up in the pass, hot. At that point, you are cleared. You are what's called remised, which means you have all new silverware, et cetera, et cetera. You've got share plates if you're sharing entrees. All of those kind of parts are in place. And it's on the server at that point to speed you up or slow you down. So if all of a sudden they fire a ticket and then people just hit the brakes, and they're like, oh, no, 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 I'm not ready yet. I, just, I want to enjoy myself for a little longer. Oh, of course. We're not going to typically what's called drop on top. Mm-hmm. which is just kind of like, you know, slam your entrees down and be like, oh, can you just uh, pick up your fork? Just there move the salad. Again? Yeah. <laughs> can you slide that over for me? Um, we're not going to do that. I mean, unless the guest says, oh, it's okay if you just bring out the food. And I'll say, okay, you sure? So, yeah. 
we will do that if people want, but as a rule, we don't do that here. Um, and so then if the people slow down, they hit the brakes, it's on the server to kind of either tell the manager or the chef to go over himself and say, hey, I need a little more time on that table. And at that point, the chef will say, okay, listen, you refire when you want it. We have a really open kitchen over there with windows and such. So the chef typically is kind of peeking a little bit. He cheats a little bit. He'll be like, oh, or he'll slow it down a little bit too. If he... You know, when I was working the past more, I'd, I'd kind of be peeking at everyone's plates out in the dining room and be like, I don't I don't I don't think Josh really meant to fire that table right now. They still have half a salad left. You know what I mean? Uh, sure. Um, so let's slow it down on him. And and then inevitably he'd come to me and be like, can you slow it down? I, was like, I already did. <laughs> <laughs> you got a big league of once in a while. You know what I mean? Like, Heck yeah. I got you. I got you. So, yeah. And um, and that's it. And then the food gets up hot and juicy and the rest is history. You know what I mean? For the diner, we, we have no clue. It's like, oh, they just figured out that I'm, my, my salad is done, you know, or, oh, it's still hot and great. And, you know, not real. I guess it's like never let them see you sweat sort of thing, right? You know, yeah, the, the tremendous yeah. effort that is coming. Well, Keith, what we say to people is we want, we want our servers to be like swans. And what I mean by that is um, above the water, all you see is this graceful, you know, white bird floating through, you know, the water but underneath they're kicking for dear life and no one can see their feet. You know what I mean? And I'm like, don't run out in the dining room. Be like a swan guys. You know, just, you gotta just, you gotta kind of float, be cool. Don't let them see you sweat. You know what I mean? I love that. And of course, um, the big question, right. As we pass the one year commemoration of the pandemic and where we're at is of course the question everyone has to be asking, which is, now what? Now what do we do? What does the world look like? If I have to hear the word pivot again, I'm going to lose my marbles. <laughs> I don't want to pivot anymore. I yeah. don't ever want to pivot again. I don't want to even play basketball again. I don't want to pivot on the court. I don't. Want, I, I just never want to pivot again because I'm tired of pivoting. And I just want to get back to where we were. When that's going to happen, I, I don't know. The toothpaste, I feel like, is kind of coming out of the tube with takeout. You know, I was so darn appreciative of everyone who got it that like, I kind of want to keep giving people what they want, you know, because they were there for me. So I said, I have to be there for everyone still, you know, we'll get busier inside slowly. We'll get busier outside slowly. Eventually I feel like, you know, takeout will slow down again. We will get to the point where we can't handle takeout. I hope we get to the point where we can't handle takeout anymore. If you know what I mean by that. Sure. Um, Because we do have a finite amount of food we can cook nightly. So, you know, that's been a challenge for us at little big diner. From the beginning, people just not understanding that, you know, when we opened this restaurant, Little Big Diner, we opened it for a 650 square foot space. It's Um, tiny. It's tiny. And we opened it to service the 20 seats we have inside. And that was it. We never were even able to do takeout. And that wasn't me like, I don't ever kick a gift horse in the mouth. Like if we could have done takeout, we would have been doing takeout. We couldn't, we literally couldn't do it. You know, we were maxed out. We we're selling 130 bowls of ramen a night, and that's what that kitchen could do. Right. And you know, when you build a restaurant, you say, okay, how many square feet do I have? Okay, I got 600 square feet. Um, if we wanted to serve every single person that tried to order a little big diner a day, we we need all 650 square feet to be kitchen. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. just a fact. And so when you look at spaces and you say, okay, this is how many square feet I have. I have to chop it up. Okay, I'm going to give you know 33% of it to the kitchen. I'll give you know, 10% of it here, 10% of it here, you know, 40% for seating, so on and so forth. And people have just been baffled by the fact that I can't get everyone's orders and it breaks my heart. And I'm like, listen, I, like, I don't know what you want from me. You know, we've gotten up, <laughs> we've gotten better and better and better. We've added people to the kitchen at Little Big Diner and um, we can do about Which is not a big kitchen, by the way. No, it's tiny. It's we've teeny, done about tiny. 140 to 150 bowls of ramen nightly on the busiest nights now. And that was more than we'd ever done. And I'm like, I'm trying my hardest. But when you say, hey, we're going to go to... Um, you know, takeout model that gives you an infinite amount of seats. You know what I mean? All of a sudden sure. we go from being a 20 seat restaurant to potentially a 600 seat restaurant. 600 people want food that night. It's like, I can't do it. Well, Dave, it has been such a pleasure to schmooze with you and uh, to learn about the deeper dynamics of your uh, restaurant empire, the city of Newton and all those who come from other cities and towns to dine at one of your four establishments. Uh, We are 
thrilled and blessed that you are able to do what you do in such a uh, dynamic way. You've really made a difference for us. And I can tell you that during the pandemic, to be able to come to Sycamore or to order from Buttonwood or get uh, ramen, get in early enough on toast to be able to get some of that ramen or, or to Ginny's, it's really, uh, it's been um your work has been one of the bright spots for for me and I know for so many other people. And I know I speak for any and everyone who's dined at one of your places that uh, we look forward to continuing to support you in the work that you do because supporting you makes us really, really happy. Well, so, Dave, I appreciate thank that. you. Oh, no, thank you. And, and I appreciate every single person. If anyone's listening um, that has been in like, thank you for all the staff. And, you know, I, I, I speak for everyone at all the restaurants, um, whether they like it or not. Um, you know, we, we thank everybody who's come in and, you know, shown any support because it's, it's, it really has kept everybody going through this darn thing. And, um, we've been really fortunate and really lucky and, um, you know, it's all the guests really. And, and we appreciate it. And I got to throw my, my one Yiddish out there. I had, I had spilkus about today. I was nervous about coming onto the onto the podcast, but this was a lot of fun. So I appreciate it. Oh, really? Uh, the pleasure, the pleasure is all ours. Thank you for being with us. Of course. Of course. We'll talk soon. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to TBA Now. We want you to subscribe, help us grow this bigger and better. Let us know what you think, any suggestions, any thoughts for who we should talk to. We are all ears. You can access us by the website, bethavodah.org, or find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.